0: Welcome to the Leader's Edge podcast. I'm Sandy Laycox, Editor-in-Chief of Leader's Edge. In this episode, I talk with health economist Neil Mejia. Neil's extensive healthcare career includes adjunct professor of business and economics at Columbia University, consultant to a variety of healthcare companies and investment firms, 18 years at Pfizer, time at the Congressional Budget Office, and more. We dive deep into healthcare issues, including Medicare price negotiations and the impact on the private market, the 340B drug pricing program, the effect of economic headwinds on healthcare, and more. Give it a listen. Neil, thank you so much for joining me. Excited to have you here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We are going to talk about drugs, healthcare costs, some of the current things going on in Congress. Uh, We'll start off, though, with your uh, work sort of as an economist in the healthcare space. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you feel current economic situation headwinds affect the healthcare industry, including, obviously, the insurance industry as a byproduct of that.
1: Sure. So healthcare is usually relatively impervious to economic headwinds, right? Right people are going to have health insurance in good times and bad. Um, the only time the health industry has lost jobs, for example, that I know of was right at the beginning of COVID when we shut down all the hospitals. Um, like from the Great Recession over the following three or four years while the industry, you know, the economy lost 7 million jobs, health health insurance employment, I mean, health care employment grew. Health insurance industry is going to track along with healthcare spending and as health spending goes up health insurance business gets bigger Um, you know it's basically a margin on the total spending amount so over a long period of time for the health insurance industry it's more spending is um, means more revenue for them and more opportunity for them to do what they say they want to do which is improve outcomes control spending manage utilization all of those things
0: Do you feel like those things are going to happen?
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, the health insurance industry in any given year always has strong incentives to try to control costs. Mm -hmm. Over a longer period, they have less of an incentive to do that. Um, I think there's a lot of focus right now on Medicare Advantage, Mm -hmm. which is an important program. About half of seniors are enrolled in Medicare Advantage, and that's sort of under various forms of pressure because of some recent rules that were passed. So there's a lot of focus there. Um, You know, on the commercial side, it's really up to the employers to determine what's going to happen, right? The health insurance companies, most of their revenue is really, you know, what you'd call ASO, you know, it's it's revenue that is, they're really just managing the risk on behalf Mm -hmm. of the big companies. They're not taking on that risk. And so it's the employers who, at the end of the day, are going to decide whether they're in the mood to cut costs. Usually, I will say, in a tight labor market, which is one we're certainly in, employee benefits tend to expand. Uh, It's very tough to take away benefits when you're competing for labor. And so I think that that will likely mean less cutting uh, as long as we're in this economic scenario where even if times are bad, you're competing for talent. You're not going to turn around and cut their benefits. Right. Um, you're probably going to grow their benefits.
0: So let's talk, you mentioned Medicare and, and some of the factors there, and you, you've talked about how Medicare price negotiations could have a larger impact on the commercial space. Can you talk about that for us?
1: Sure. So. For the first time, Medicare is meant to start negotiating prices. I usually use obnoxious air quotes when (laughs) I I talk about negotiating because, you know, a negotiation implies there are two sides, but really what it is is they're going to start setting prices for drugs that have been on the market for at least nine years, starting in 2026, and they're going to be phasing this in, and we're going to see the list of which drugs they're planning on targeting. The first 15 drugs are going to be announced supposedly in September. What's very unclear is how they're going to decide what they're willing to pay for those drugs. Um, you know, they might take a page out of the book in Europe where they sort of try to come up with some average value for patients. There's a lot of resistance to that in the US. They call that a quality adjusted life year approach. They may just impose a price. When it comes to price negotiations in Medicare, It's very unclear how they're going to conduct those negotiations. Are they just going to look at the statutory minimum rebates, which start at 40% and go up from there? Or are they just going to go right to the maximum, which is basically a 95% rebate? Completely unclear how whatever negotiation they do or whatever rebates they impose, how that's going to interact with the 340B program, with even commercial rebates, Um, I do think commercial PBMs are going to look at whatever Medicare and CMS are doing and probably copy them because that's usually what commercial plans do with this kind of thing. So the big debate over the next couple of years is really going to be what methodology does CMS use to decide what a drug is worth. In fact, my company, Entity Risk, is built to help companies figure that out. Right. So there's a big opportunity out there to sort of impact the rules of the road, the administrative rules that they're going to choose. I think there's going to be a lot of arguing. But company, you know, the drug companies now are taking a very hard look at how will I explain the value relative to the price I want to charge for this drug. And the payers, in turn, are taking a long, hard look at what system do I want to use to justify whatever decisions I'm going to make on coverage and they've never really had to do that before. Certainly plans do that now but it's not this sort of laid out thing so as uh, everybody starts thinking about what is a drug worth led by CMS and this Medicare negotiation it's going to be a very interesting evolution to see where it goes and, and I don't think anybody has any idea where it's going to go because the, the rules around it kind of conflict with each other there are some rules that say from the Obamacare era, like you can't use quality adjusted life years to determine value. And then there's the new rules that say you've got to use comparative effectiveness analysis to determine value. Well, those things you can't both yeah. of those things don't really work so or you need some third way to do it. And I think um, you know my company and others are sort of promulgating uh, here's a better way to think about value and and I think there's going to be, a lot of interest in that sort of question from policymakers and others over the next couple of years. Mm
0: -hmm. You mentioned the 340B program. Mm -hmm. I, I know it's a very complicated program. Can you sort of break it down basically for our listeners as to what that is and how it may affect all of this?
1: Sure. So the 340B program has been around 30 years, but has really grown over the last five to seven years. And the program works as follows. Hospitals and clinics qualify for the program based on meeting certain criteria for treating a certain percentage of low-income patients. That is determined by formulas. Originally, there were 32 hospitals eligible to participate in this program that I'll describe in a second. Now there's about 2,600 hospitals. More than half of the hospitals in the country are in the program. For-profit hospitals are not allowed to be in the program. It's only not-for-profit hospitals. There are about 4,000 of those, so 2,600 out of 4,000 are in the program. Being in the program, you know, membership has its privileges, as they say, right? So if you're in the 340B program, you're a hospital, you get to buy drugs at the same or better price than what Medicaid buys drugs for. Medicaid, by law, pays the lowest price for drugs. Whatever the best price is, whatever discount a drug company gives to any commercial payer, Medicaid automatically gets it. In addition, if a drug company raises its list price by faster than the rate of inflation, Medicaid gets the difference between their list price and the inflation rate. So for many, many drugs, about 2,500 drugs, Medicaid pays a penny Mm -hmm. for the drug. So if you're a 340B hospital, you also get to buy that drug for a penny. Now, in theory, you would think, what do they do with these drugs that they buy for a penny? They give them to poor people. In fact, they can do whatever they want with those drugs. They, you know, The thing that they like to do is sell that drug that they bought for a penny to a well-insured patient, let's say a Medicare patient or a commercial patient. The prescription gets filled. The provider gets reimbursed at the full price or whatever that negotiated price is. And then the difference between the super low expensive purchase and the reimbursement that's the profit from 340B. Mm -hmm. I've estimated that profit is um, over $40 billion a year and growing in this system. So $40 billion out of 300 or so billion of total drug spend or $350 billion total, is a very large amount of money. And because there's no requirement to pass those discounts along to the patients, the discounts get distributed to different folks. Patients might get some of those discounts Maybe 20 or 25 percent, I have estimated, would go to the patients. The rest goes to pharmacies. So, contract pharmacies, PBMs included, so CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid. They're the major participants who drive this program. Some of the profits go to the hospitals that are eligible. Probably 25 or 30 billion dollars goes to the hospitals out of the, let's say it's 50 billion, I'd say 25 or 30 goes to the hospitals. 10 or 15 goes to the pharmacies. Some whatever is left over maybe gets passed along to patients in the form of discounts. One of the challenges of 340B is that uh, this contract pharmacy sort of way of administering it means that if you walk into a CVS or a Rite Aid and you fill your prescription, if you're identified as the patient of one of these eligible systems, mm-hmm. they can sort of pluck your prescription and fill it as a 340B prescription after the fact. So you, it's already gone through the adjudication. It's been, the person walks out, paid it normal, out of pocket, everything's normal. Turns out you were actually, in effect, a 340B you know unwitting right. uh, member. And um, now sometimes you're a very witting member. I'm sure lots of hospitals have programs where, you know oh, I'm in the 340B, that's great. But the vast majority of prescriptions that are filled under 340B are not that. They're really just taking that patient and basically making a profit off of them at whatever reimbursement they get from Medicare or their commercial insurance. So what happens then is that the profit goes to the different folks. So let's say your CVS, or you know, they're probably making eight or $10 billion a year off of this, which is huge for them. The hospitals might make some Big hospitals, small hospitals, all participate. They can increase their profits from this by buying up in, uh, like doctor practices, mm-hmm. inf- infusion centers for cancer patients. When they buy those, those patients become patients of the 340B institution, and so instead of making a little bit of money off of administering that cancer drug, they can make a ton of money. Mm-hmm. right? That has led to a tremendous amount of consolidation on the hospital side and on the vertical and horizontal. That in turn, what does that do to prices? Of course, it's gonna raise them on the commercial side. So you've got 340B encouraging consolidation, which raises prices. You also have it um, making it more painful for drug companies to give discounts on the commercial side because it filters back through best price and probably results in lower discounting. Certainly will do that over time, especially combined with the Medicare rules. So overall, this program, which is supposedly not a government program, is in fact causing a lot of chaos around the healthcare sort of food chain, the insurance. And I don't think employers, most certainly I talk to a lot of employers and I talk to a lot of um, uh, others in the food chain. And they're sort of dimly aware that 340B is a thing and that it's growing and that they should probably learn more about it. But to be honest, it took me six months to just even understand yeah. <laughs> how this program works It's very complicated and there is no direct spending of a federal dollar in this program so it makes it kind of a tricky one for congress because they they're like well like you know if what do I, if i cut this program basically i'm going to have a bunch of hospitals really mad at me right and that's a tough sell politically and yeah. so you know i think little hospitals are getting frustrated with big hospitals right You know, little hospitals are looking at the big hospitals and saying, you know, you're doing what you're doing. They're going to kill this thing, and I need it to survive. So I think there's some interesting dynamics there that, you know, will start to play out now that it— and and there are some Supreme Court cases and other cases that are sort of a year from now, I think, will have a lot more clarity. And then we'll see where that leads in terms of legislation and and, uh, whether it activates Congress to do anything.
0: Well, my next question was going to be, do you think that there's appetite— to reform the program given that it does help some hospitals that really do need those funds to serve, you know, very poor populations?
1: Yeah, hospitals and also, um, you know, the, the clinics, the federally funded healthcare clinics are all eligible for 340B. And you can bet that in a negotiation with a contract pharmacy, a lot of the money that's meant for these clinics is going to the pharmacies. Yeah, There's no question about that. I've estimated it's, it's a pretty significant number. And so um, is there appetite? There's definitely interest. Um, there's, I would say, both sides probably have some appetite for can we get a sensible bipartisan reform going here? Uh, right now, that's like it would be somewhat miraculous to, <laughs> for anything right. bipartisan sensible to happen. Um, but. You know, I think that as the rules... I think right now people are in a little bit of a holding pattern waiting to see what happens with these cases. And then they'll understand the, play, the ground that they're playing on. Um, I think just as a, as a taxpayer, mm-hmm. I think what's been lost in the debate is the degree to which um, taxpayers really are subsidizing this program, even if it's not like an obvious line item. Because it's costing Medicare money, it's costing Medicaid money, It's costing the drug companies money. Drug companies are taxpayers too, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. And and the 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 people who are gaining, largely hospitals, are not for profit, so they're not paying taxes. And so there is a pretty big cost to this whole thing, that would be on par with any other piece of major healthcare legislation. And it just flies totally under the radar.
0: All right, you talked a little bit about consolidation and its effects in the drug space. Mm -hmm. Are there other effects for Employers, commercial payers um, of hospital and physician consolidation? Oh,
1: massive. Uh, if you look at what's happened to commercial pricing for hospital services, physician services, it's a one-way, you know, it's just like up. It's like a very steep up. <laughs> Why is it up? Well, consolidation, so like the FTC, which is – you know, worried about every kind of big company for some reason isn't too worried about giant hospital systems from what I can see mm-hmm. uh, so because they're not-for-profit maybe they've they've uh, and, and frankly there have been some policy motivators for consolidation the ACA was really encouraged um, consolidation and coordination of care coordination of care can be great right. but the the net result is if there's one or two big hospital systems you know, Medicare and Medicaid don't wind up paying more, but the commercial payers pay a lot more and, you know, vertical consolidation certainly not only causes higher prices, but higher utilization because the hospitals and the physicians can work together, right? That utilization might be very good. It might be justified, but in a lot of cases it's going to raise spending. It's going to raise prices. And and then the horizontal consolidation you see within a market, this has been shown again and again by economists, uh, Consolidated markets have much, much higher prices for for any and all hospital services that you can name. Whether it's a simple chest X-ray or heart, you know, uh, you know, artificial heart, any anything in between, it's all more expensive at a consolidated system. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that's had an enormous impact. Hospitals are thirty to forty percent of overall healthcare spending. Add in physicians, you're at fifty percent. So if half of your health spend has been in this massive consolidation, that has had a really big impact on the commercial premiums, I'm sure. A much bigger impact than the pharma piece, where net pricing has been flat, but utilization has been going up. You know, that has an impact, and I think we shouldn't overlook that impact, but I think if you if you look where the money is, the money's in hospitals and in physician services, and the consolidation there, like in any other consolidated market, has had a clear impact on prices.
0: All right, one more pricing question. We've seen uh, price transparency happening with hospital pricing and PBM transparency is talked about. Do you feel like this is going to have a positive impact on you know ultimately patient choice or what employers are spending in terms of their their staff?
1: Well, I think transparency, I mean, as an economist, I generally love transparency. You know, your first day of Econ 101, we teach how, you know, you want there to be full information in a market. And so without transparent prices, what do you have? Um, It has to have proper context to have any impact. So if all I know is the size of a discount, I don't really know everything I need to know. Uh, I think there's, as I mentioned before, there's a lot of interest in understanding some of the qualitative measures to sort of match with the pricing. Mm-hmm. Like I wouldn't want to just compare two hospitals on price, just like right. like if I were deciding where to go to dinner and one place was $100 a plate and the other was 10 there's <laughs> more information to think about, yeah. right? And so it's same for hospitals, you know, there's differences in quality. A study came out in JAMA um, two weeks ago. Uh, that looked at whether these big health systems have, you know, different prices, different quality. Pretty it got a lot of publicity, so I don't know, but maybe that was in health policy wonk <laughs> circles that it got a lot of publicity We read JAMA all the time. Yeah, right? yeah, we're reading JAMA. Um, but it was a bunch of economists and um, including the chairman of MedPAC, uh, Mike Turner who was one of the authors, where what they saw was, you know, maybe disappointingly, maybe not surprisingly, health system prices much higher mm-hmm. for physician, and hospital services. Health system quality, no difference than if you're not in a system. So they've accomplished the part where they get higher prices. They haven't accomplished the part where there's any difference in quality for being in a coordinated healthcare system, which for policy wonks is pretty disappointing because when you look back to Obamacare and the ACA, ACA you were like, well... We'll get care coordination going and yeah. we'll, like everything and none of that has resulted in any improvement in quality but yet we're paying in systems 20 30 40 percent more for the same service which is very disappointing and so now that we have transparency on the hospital side which only started a couple of years ago is that having an impact I think it's too soon to tell mm-hmm. on the drug side transparency you know it's true that confidential rebates, might encourage bigger rebates. That would be the argument for don't have too much transparency. But I think if you look at the reality of our system, it's clear that the PBMs are getting their revenue from someplace. And so the place it must be is this gross-to-net bubble. And the gross-to-net sort of, the the increasing just massive size, it's a couple hundred billion dollars, or maybe it's closer to $300 billion. That's the playing field of the PBM. And given the amount of money that's at stake, it seems like we would all want to know more about what's going on there.
0: Absolutely. So we'll see, I guess. We'll (laughs) we'll see. (laughs) We'll
1: see. I do think that um, an area where Republicans, many Republicans and Democrats seem to agree, is that they have concerns about the PBM industry and would like to understand what's going on underneath the hood there. Um, And so, again, in a context, the the healthcare is interesting in the sense that the traditional sort of Republican versus Democrat doesn't really apply to healthcare. A lot of it is different things like urban versus rural Mm -hmm. or, you know, it's more along different, there's different dimensions. Um, You know, I I do always say hospitals have the upper hand generally because they're such a large employer and in in every district so everyone's always worried about the hospitals Um, but we should never lose sight of the importance of encouraging that innovation.
0: Well, Neil, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate
1: it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: That was healthcare economist Neil Mejia. For more podcasts on topics like this, visit leadersedge.com.